Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. As you will have noticed, if you are a regular listener, we are a week late on posting this episode. Chris and I have been absolutely swamped as of late, and so we apologize to bring you this episode somewhat delayed from our usual bi-weekly release schedule. We are preparing to put the research from the literature review that we were doing and what we have been discussing from primary sources on the end phase into an article, and so are looking to scale back in the near future and take a short break to devote some time to that project. For today, however, we have a bit of a grab bag, really. First, there are some news announcements about an upcoming conference that it looks very interesting. Then we will be joined briefly for a comment by Jim Ritalik about 1933 as the vanishing point of German political culture from the late 19th century. He's released a new book that has some exciting contributions in this area for those of you who follow. And then we will be moving on in the third part to complete the conversation with Katrin Paler about intelligence history, and gender. So, it's a little bit of everything this time, but without further ado, the news. Well, first item, we have a review by Jana Steuber from the Forschungsstelle für Sozial- und Wirtschaftsgeschichte at Universität Zürich on André Pasterts Hitler Junger Schal, which is an edited edition of The Diaries of a Hitler Youth. So, Janusz points out that diaries have special attention in the history of National Socialism. Initially, historians paid a lot of attention to the diaries of political and military elites as the decision-making process of the regime was being reconstructed. And then, since the 1980s, focus has shifted onto the victims of National Socialist violence. But more recently, as you've have this greater research trend towards the history of everyday life and lived experience, things like this, you have more and more attention to average members of national socialist organizations. So, enter the diary of Schall, a member of the Hitler Youth. Postert has edited the diaries of Franz Albrecht Schall, who was born in Altenburg, Thuringen in 1913. And grew up in an educated household of the educational bourgeoisie, the Bildungsbürgertum, and joined the Bund Deutschen Neufadfinder at age 12. So this connection with the earlier backpacking movement, and from here forged a path to the Hitler Youth in 1930. 
Two years later, he joined the party and remained active in the movement after Hitler's appointment as chancellor, when in 1938, he completed a three-year course of study at University of Jena and became a teacher at the Adolf Hitler School in Sonthofen. So his diaries chart this early transition from the hiking movement into the Hitler Youth with extensive entries about his involvement with the movement up to summer 1935. Postert provides an introduction in this edition, laying out the historical context with the general public in mind. Stoiver raises some important concerns about his lack of clarity about the principles behind the editorial decisions that are being made on what to include and what to trim, as well as Shaw's own editing of the diaries in the 1970s. So this would be 30 years after the end of the Third Reich, when he edited these diaries to circulate them among his former social circle. Stoiver therefore commends a critical distance to Postert's claim that this represents a, quote, true, perhaps unique insight into the thinking and feeling of a Hitler youth. These diaries were edited after the fact, and they were edited with a particular peer group in mind. Schall is also presented as a seduced youth. So Stoiber has this alarm again at an uncritical acceptance of the diary's authenticity, particularly in light of the editing after the fact. Stoiber's review raises this important point that the diaries served as a sort of proof of political engagement in national socialism. So this was not just that Shaw was being seduced, but this was Shaw recording his support and involvement and activism on behalf of the regime as a sort of politische Gutachten, a proof of his credentials and support for the movement. Now, the overarching message is that the diaries are an especially interesting source of information for research on National Socialism, but that we do need to approach them with this critical distance and understanding of who produced them, who edited them, when, and why. Second item, there is a call for papers by the Dark Side of Belt Epoch Europe Political Violence and Armed Association project that Chris and I discussed a few episodes back from one of their previous conference reports. They are hosting another conference and have put out a call for papers. This one is going to be held at the University of Oxford by the Faculty of History, the Oxford Center for European History. The deadline for submissions is going to be the 30th of June, 2018, so you do not have much time to put in a suggestion if you are interested in applying to the conference. The list of potential themes include, but are not limited to, the rise of paramilitaries, vigilantes, private police, and detective agencies in the field of labor relations, revolutionary fears and civilian schemes of anti-labor mobilization, the development and consolidation of company or yellow unions, the relationship between state authorities and non-state actors in the repression of labor, the formulation of anti-labor and anti-socialist legislation, transnational circulation of anti-labor ideology, discourses and practices, anti-labor international cooperation and exchange between employer associations, and cases of anti-labor violence. Now, the perspective of the project, again, is looking at the rise of political violence and armed association, and to that end, the time horizon for the study 
is between the 1890s and 1930s. For those of you who are interested in the path into the First World War and unresolved tensions that escalated during the interwar era before culminating in the populist and fascist movements of the 1930s, I would encourage you to submit your work and, of course, look forward to hearing back from the conference report after it's no doubt published. Now, Jim Ritalik and the idea of 1933 as the vanishing point of German history. My latest interview for the New Books in German Studies channel over with the New Books Network, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jim Ritalik about his new book, Red Saxony, Election Battles and the Spectre of Democracy in Germany, 1860 to 1918. Jim has done a lot of work in the past. Those of you who follow this podcast, some of you will no doubt know his previous work with Notables of the German Right and the Limits of the Authoritarian Imagination. So he has this long history of working with German conservatism and authoritarian political culture. So when his latest book, Red Saxony, came out, I was eager to interview him because he deals with a lot of these long-term developments from the late 19th century in the Kaiserreich that then lead into the First World War, and you get these discussions about Volksgemeinschaft and things like this that then lead into a lot of the issues that you end up discussing with Nazism. And of course, the images of the enemy that Nazism creates are grounded in a political culture with a longer history that reaches back to the 19th century, whatever transformations it undergoes in the 1920s notwithstanding. So, in his latest book, Jim pointed to 1933 as the vanishing point of German history rather than 1942. And by 1942, of course, he's pointing to the beginning of the Holocaust in earnest, the Wannsee Conference, the active phase of the extermination of European Jews. And so he said that rather than looking at the course of German history as leading to 1942 as a vanishing point, we should perhaps direct our attention more towards 1933. So I asked him to perhaps tell us a little bit more about what he meant by that. And this was his response. The idea of a vanishing point is a concept that was taken up by my friend at uh, Vanderbilt, Helmut uh, Walzer Smith, who has, in fact, argued like me for rediscovering in a way or uh, giving new emphasis to continuities from the 19th to the 20th century. But for Helmut and for others, increasingly, I think, in the last 10, 15 years, the vanishing point has been uh, 1941, 1942, when Auschwitz and other death camps got up to operational speed. Um, And so, quite legitimately, they look at the long-term roots of anti-Semitism, of the Nazis' embrace of modernism, industrial techniques, obviously, eventually, of industrial techniques of uh, genocide. But I, I, in an essay on why Ralph Dahrendorf, the German sociologist who wrote about society and politics in Germany in, in 1965, I believe that the demise of democracy in 1933 is another vanishing point that, to put it neatly, we shouldn't allow to vanish from the historical and analytical 
record. Uh, as I say, as I said in one essay, um, it, of course, required a great deal after January 30th, 1933, for Hitler to implement his, his uh, policy of uh, rearmament, of, uh, of uh, uh, marginalization to the extreme, of Jews in German society, of uh, uh, world war and, and uh, the Holocaust. But um, in a sense, uh, none of that would be possible without the demise, the defeat of, of democracy. Uh, currently, there's some interesting new books, one by Ben Het, uh, of the death of democracy just out, uh, about how important January 30th, 1933 was. But the best of these analyses, of course, discard the notion that Hitler was voted into power. That's, that's a, that's, that, that's a myth. He never had a majority, but of course he was appointed. Uh, Chancellor by, by Hindenburg in, in January 1933. And it required another, one could say, three months, six months, uh, 18 months to, uh, to inter democracy once and for all. Sometimes the, uh, as you know, the, uh, the, the night of the long knives in June of 1934 is sometimes, uh, taken as a, as a point where there was no turning back. So I don't want to suggest that uh, democracy, uh, the, the, the vanishing point of 1933 was an overnight sort of uh, historical moment. But on the other hand, my work is, is um, uh, concerned with anti-Semitism and social exclusion and unfair practices and in many corners of political culture. But uh, it seems to me that uh, evidence of anti-democratic thought, anti-democratic action, anti-democratic strategies, where I try to uh, study how people establish affinities between democracy and socialism, democracy and Judaism, democracy and liberalism, all with a negative connotation. They, they point towards uh, 1933, I think, as strongly as they point towards 1941 and 42. Jim's new book traces what he calls a reciprocal relationship between political modernization in Germany and authoritarianism, and is a very interesting read, very well-written read as well, I might add, for those of you who are interested in these questions of modernization, democratization, authoritarianism, and, of course, the rise of Nazism. If you want to hear more about that, I suggest you pop over to the New Books in German Studies channel. But in the meantime, we now have the continuation of our discussion with Katrin Paler and the use of sources, but in this case, in relationship to intelligence, history, and gender. You know, there's another part of your work where I am curious about the method used for for analyzing sources and and that's the the case of uh, Hildegard Beetz. Yeah. Could you tell us the brief uh, summation of Hildegard Beetz's story? Well, and then we can we can talk about the sources you used to to look at her as well. Here's the interesting story with with Beetz. Um her story is well known. Or the traditional story is well known, and the traditional story is a very simple one, that you have this young and pretty translator 
who is used by Office 6 as an intermediary between Office 6 and Galeazzo Ciano, um, uh, the, the foreign Italian foreign minister, when he was already in prison in Verona. And as, um, he, was, he was put put on trial and eventually executed. But in this time in between, while he was in prison in Verona, there is talk within the SD Office 6 to um, basically spring him from prison, um, ship him into Switzerland where, where, where the rest of his family already is. And they are going to do that in exchange for his diaries and um Office 6 wants to use his, his diaries, the official diaries, because they uh, throw a bad light on Ribbentrop and uh, they want to get rid of Ribbentrop, the foreign minister. So, and Hildegard Bates is in this uh, role in this story, which is well known, is that um, she's this young and pretty secretary. She is basically going, she's, she's scuttling back and forth between um, her supervisors in Office 6 and Galea Sociano. She becomes um, involved with Chiano, romantically involved, sexually involved. So there's all this innuendo going on. Story is is, is well known. You can find it in the, in the literature dating back to pretty much the Dark Ages. Um, <clears throat> I think there was actually even a movie made about that. So this is what is known. And then I'm in the archives in, what, 2006, 2007, whatever. And the CIA files had just been released on Bates. And I looked at them thinking, you know, it's it's going to give me one, 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 one other piece or two other pieces, just, you know, basically out of shits and giggles to firm that section up in, in the manuscript. I look at the documents and come to several quite intriguing conclusions. Now, actually, let me backtrack. The one thing I'd picked up already when I was writing my, um, my, my, my dissertation, the book, is that Bates had been, she had been in Rome as a translator secretary before um, September, July of 1943. So with the German embassy there, she was always listed as the secretary to Herbert Kappler, who was um, the Gestapo man, the police attaché. So what I picked up earlier already were brief comments from through which it became fairly clear that Bates had initially been sent to Rome as a secretary to an Office 6 representative, actually to two of them, and those guys were always uh, called back to Germany. Second time around, she stayed. And then there was indication in the documents I had looked at before that basically um, for about a year, although she was officially listed as a secretary for Kappler, Hildegard Bates, for all intents and purposes, ran Office 6 um, activities, for lack of a better word, in Rome. So that I found already surprising. So this is the context in which I, um, I realized her file had been released, and I decided to take another look at it, thinking, well, give me a little bit more detail, maybe, on what exactly she was doing in Rome. So then it turns out, looking at her file, that she had a very, not a very different, a much more prominent role in this whole attempt to uh, spring Chiano from prison. That there was very good indication from her documents, 
that she was actually more or less the master mastermind behind that slightly differently. I mean, this idea of exchanging Chiano for the diaries had been very much in the air, but she she is the one putting the pedal to the metal here and, and putting the plan together for the guys who are um, officially her supervisors. So, so she has a much more prominent role in this in, entire um, situation. She has a much more prominent role in... Uh, the way how Edda Ciano, uh, Edda, Edda Ciano, Edda Mussolini, so she is Mussolini's daughter, uh, Ciano's wife, um, flees to Switzerland uh, with with the diaries. So there is much more to be told about Hildegard Beetz's role. That is story one, and story two then is that um, in the in, uh, in the in the immediate post war period, Beetz begins to work for um, U.S intelligence in Berlin and is involved with a whole bunch of um, incredibly dangerous, fairly outrageous um, uh, fairly outrageous activities in Berlin. So is then groomed to become a US asset and uses that opportunity to become a journalist and actually becomes one of West Germany's um, most prominent female journalists in the 1960s and 70s into the 80s. So that is kind of the the big outline. So there is a broader story here that I think is really worth telling. Um, And and that's what I'm I'm doing in my next book, and I'm working on it right now, because it taps into so many interesting stories. And one of the most interesting ones here is, is absolutely about gender, I think. Because one of the reasons why why, why Bates' story is not there has a lot to do with gender on each and every level. You know, how she was construed as this kind of the love-struck uh, little little secretary and translator. And she she's very clear that on the fact that she, she isn't that, how she took a much more active role in um, this, this whole Chiano business and a much more active role thereafter. Um, so, so, so I think gender and gender roles is very much a reason why that doesn't make it into, you know, the the official circulation. At the same time, the the reason why she talks so openly to her U.S. interrogators also has to do with gender, because she she's reasonably safe at that point already. Everybody knows that. Uh, I mean, the Americans know that she has been involved with um, helping Edda Chiano who made it to Switzerland with the diaries, and the diaries become important during the Nuremberg trials. So she is reasonably safe on that account. But she is also different from the men. She's not auditioning for post-war position in intelligence. I mean, she her understanding, she, she's a good secretary. She does several languages. She knows that she needs to find some sort of employment eventually. But um, it's going to be as a secretary in some, some way, shape, or form. So she talks about, is able to talk about things much more openly than her male counterparts who are auditioning for post-war. You know, they are, they are auditioning for their lives to some extent and then hopefully for post-war employment with um, Western intelligence services. So there are so many layers one can, one can explore with this particular story. And as you can tell, I'm, I'm quite excited about it. So in this situation, by understanding how 
interrogators understood gender roles, you can approach the sources that they created uh, in a different way. I, I yes, I think so. There's this really fascinating document where shortly before she the the Americans start using her officially, she is um, she's asked to write a Lebenslauf, so you know the long form CV, kind of an essay form, and and she's actually uh, Bates is quite forthright about. Um, the, the 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 time she spent with the BDM, the role she she took in the BDM, um, and and is is quite forthright also about how she initially becomes involved with with ESD first in in Weimar. So so there's there's her version of it. And then there's a summary version of the same document written by her American interrogators, which is just amazing in the sense that um, she, in, in this second document, it is filtered through U.S. ideas of women in Nazi Germany. And out of that comes a Hildegard Bates, who is by far, who's more quote-unquote female, who has far less agency, who is under the thumb of um, of overreaching, scary SD men, um, and it's it's absolutely fascinating to see how how gender influences the way this document is written. The f- most fascinating thing is that um, the Americans basically write it. So, so she. Um, in, in 19, 1939, she finds herself in a position that what she had planned to do, namely to go um, to Switzerland to study Fran- French for um, six months, uh, doesn't work out because, the be- because of the beginning of the war. At that point, she had been to secretarial school. She had um, English and, and, and Italian already. So, you know, she was, she was nicely equipped um, for for some 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 sort of reasonably high level secretarial work, let's put it that way, or translation work. So in thirty nine, um, she she's also she she thinks she should should be employed. There's a younger mother, uh, the younger younger brother. Her mother is widowed. Um, she's not planning to to sit on her tush and and wait to get married. So she goes to the. Um, um, Arbeitsamt, as far, as far as I can tell, in, in Weimar, the labor, labor exchange office, and is then assigned to the SD in Weimar, as, as far as I can tell, Office 3. And is sworn to secrecy, as far as I can tell, and whatnot. So the, how the Americans tell the story um, is that the, she had a very overbearing boss there who held her to some oath she had sworn and 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 really um, didn't didn't treat her well and she was there for quite some time the way she tells the story is quite a different one the way she tells the story is that yeah she was sworn to some some inner inner office secrecy but after a couple of months she was bored out of her skull and approached her boss and basically said in no uncertain terms that she she spoke several 
languages and was completely overqualified for filing documents. Which is then how she is promoted to Berlin, to the Italian desk with Office 6 in Berlin. So here you can see how gender plays out in, in, in the way how she presents herself and how she is presented um, by well-meaning U.S. interrogators in 1945. So you think that she felt more free to discuss what uh, she had been involved in truthfully because she just understood that it wasn't going to be heard? No, I, th I think she she discussed it more truthfully because she knew I mean she she knew that as as a woman she was not the primary focus of 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 any investigation does that make sense I mean she she's hiding behind the I I, I was the secretary but I did all this other stuff and some of it actually um, worked to the advantage of the Western allies so she was kind of reasonably safe on on that level already. But I, I think there was also an understanding that they would not come come after her in the same way because she was a woman. And there was also an understanding uh, that she, you know, she needed to eventually find employment in the post-war era, but it would not be in intelligence, although in her case it actually was, but most likely as as a, as a secretary or as a translator. So there, there is a different sensibility that guides the way how she interacts with, um, with the interrogators because um, her motivation is a different one. Her expected outcome is a different one. You following me here? Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, uh, I think that it does. You know what? What is so f fascinating about about the the men in those interviews? They they tend to you know they they, they tend to pimp everything they did. They kind of you know they're 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 walking around or trying to to walk around with their chest puffed out and 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 they are teasing the Western in uh, the the Allied interrogators with oh I could tell you this and I could tell you that but they never never quite do that. So there is lots and lots of you know, showcasing going on. It's quite interesting to see how different she is, I think, because she, I, I argue, I don't think, I don't believe, I argue that she um, feels safer because she, she is not auditioning, she is not trying to, to, to get a particularly fancy job. So she, she very much lays out the facts in a different way. Doesn't mean that everything is truthful, but we see a difference in how how those how the two genders interact in those um, situations of an interrogation. Do you think then that that process is generalizable, or is it entirely reliant on the specific case the specific case of Bates? My my guess would be is general general yeah that word um, you can generalize it um, that's that's my guess I haven't run you know I I haven't run a test case yet but uh, that that would be my guess I mean you you see I'm just thinking now a couple of um, of interrogations with women I have seen they tend to be 
they tend to be less trying to figure out the, the best word here. Adversar adversarial is not the word I'm looking for. They, they tend to be focused more on the surface, on the side of the interrogators, because there's this understanding, you know, we're we are only talking to the secretary. Um, while some of the women are actually quite forthright. And, and I think there is a similar sense of security that is there. I mean, not, not security in, in the sense of nothing will happen to me, um, but but also, you know, the understanding of... Um, I am not the, the, the I'm I'm not the prime target here. I'm the person who is giving the additional information, if that makes sense. Which which also means that um, you know there's more to be had from from those interrogations. What's the name of the woman who was working on the Rice Security Main Office? Um, uh, women's secretaries with David Chesarani. There was there was someone who was working on that, and I think with David Chesarani, Lady David Chesarani um, in 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 London, who was working on this. I heard about that a couple of years ago. I've I've not I've yet to hear about a book or whether that that dissertation was was ever finished. I'm tempted to say Rachel or Rebecca something, but that's not helping a lot. But um, long, the short story here is that there was um, a PhD student working on this, and I was really excited about that because, um, you know, as we all know, secretaries know way more than they let on. And it seemed to me the little I knew about that dissertation project um, that this particular um, uh, PhD student was was looking into that type of information, but that's all I can say about it. Well, as you say, they know where the bodies are buried. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that 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 is what I'm what I'm interested here in this particular Bates project because it's also, I mean, it's a study about what does it mean to be female and ambitious in 20th century Germany, and and she she's she's absolutely going for it. And I I, I also like to consider, you know, how people use what what and women in particular here, use what they learned in Nazi Germany to navigate post-war Germany. So, you know, to, to, to really look at biography as a whole and, 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 and not, not chop it up all that much. You know, there's a kind of, there's a Nazi persona and there's a post-war persona, but I think the the connections are, rather intriguing, rather strong, and and it's worthwhile looking into that some more. I mean, I'm, I'm very intrigued with this whole I, I, idea of, of looking at the issue of gender there. Um, what, what have you guys been finding in your, in your work? Does gender make a difference? You know, I, I find that post-war courts in particular always make a point of emphasizing when victims are women. And I think that that, that can, can tell us something about the way that Nazi crimes were processed after the end of the war, that if you want to truly discredit Nazism and show just how terrible it is, then killing 
military-aged men is not enough. That there need to be women and children who are victims. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, you see the flip side to some extent in um, some some of the denazification um, proceedings, or then then the, the very few trials in in the fifties and one one in the sixties, how comparatively hard they come down on women who were involved with Nazi crimes in. Um, this is this book um, Dave Messenger and I edited, and um, Elizabeth Kohlhaas has a fascinating article there on Gertrude Slotke, who was involved with um, the deportations from the Netherlands, and um, she feels the the brunt of the post-war judiciary system much more so than the people she actually worked for. It's quite amazing. So you know that's that's kind of the flip side that goes into that. And, and why do you suppose that is? Is it because she was stepping outside of her prescribed role in order to commit these crimes, that it is just that much more heinous? I, I think it is. Uh, she was stepping outside of, of, of those borders. She was also not as smart and politically minded as the men when it came to, to talking about what she did. Uh huh. So, so maybe this is the same kind of process that was going on with with Bates. That she may have assumed that she had an element of safety. Yes, it's 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 actually quite possible that she she might have assumed that she saw herself her role as as quite minor. Um, and and she she was intriguingly stubborn about it. Um, and and I think to some extent there is the assumption that you know it's it's also I think that trial happens almost twenty years later, um, and and I think to quite some extent there there is this element where she thinks, well it's twenty years later um, and I'm a nice elderly woman at this point, so it's 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 not going to be all that bad, so yeah it's definitely in there. All right. Well, Ryan, do do you have any other uh, issues that you'd like to uh, bring up here? Well, I could respond. You asked about uh, how gender plays into the Gestapo stuff. I've definitely seen it in the interrogations and the way that they handle different – the way that they handle – women is different from the way that they handle men Uh, very, very clearly in that there is an assumption that Mm -hmm. women are apolitical unless proven otherwise through explicit sort of uh, explicit political affiliation, party membership and things like this. And that uh, there's, there's all these other interesting factors like the way that, uh, a, re- a politically reliable husband can offset uh, the indiscretions of his wife. Well, of course. Well, it's, which is <laughs> amazing to me, though, because you have the, you have people who are saying things that are not just defeatist and not just critical, but like that that sort of special mixture where they get between those, they, they combine those two things into an attack and a rejection of Nazism. Yeah. 
And that, that's, that tends to be sort of where you, that's kind of the line in the sand in a lot of these cases. But you have, and, and in other cases, like I, there's one woman's case who stands out to me where she had been responsible for spreading uh, reports about military defeats from uh, the BBC. And there's a completely different, like that's sort of, that's a capital offense. And it's usually not punished as a capital offense. It usually results in, in Zuchthaus, like a penitentiary sentence. And instead they're like, oh, her husband's in the military and uh, he's an officer and he has a good reputation. That's what's written up in the draft. And then in the final report, they cross out the fact that he's an officer and <laughs> they place the emphasis on the fact that he's politically reliable and fighting. Is it brilliant? <laughs> Yeah, no, like there's this whole element of like, well, in the classless, classless Volksgemeinschaft, we can't have references to the fact that he has the privilege of being an officer, right? So, uh, they focus on the politics instead. And then, uh, so you see things like that. And then there are, there's a fascinating case with this uh, uh, 15-year-old girl called Maria who falls in love with a pitcher of a, a British bomber pilot who is featured in Der Adler and yeah, no constructs an entire imaginary romance and starts writing letters to him and keeping like, she has these kind of manifestos that reproduce the Nazi program, but are how she and Tom are going to uh, rework post-war Britain. And she's like, the day I met you is the day I became an English woman and things like this. And like the Gestapo are like, oh my God, this Romeo parachute agent has seduced this young woman. <laughs> and then they find out, oh, it's an act of imagination. And they like, they call up her parents and are like, take your daughter home and make sure she doesn't do this again, right? It's brilliant. It's it's an absolutely stunning story, and 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 then you have these sort of so like youth plays into that too, but um, and, and age age definitely is sort of acts as a, a kind of I don't know force multiplier is kind of a the wrong metaphor here, but it, it definitely it, it puts more emphasis on any mitigating factors yeah. and. Uh, but so does gender. Right? But then, like, the treason cases, if somebody's actively involved in distributing communist flyers and they have a background, uh, there's some interesting court cases where they specifically say, normally we wouldn't do this because she's a woman and not schooled in the ways of the world as a man who's part of public life. But her long-term membership in the party shows us that she's not ignorant of these things. So that's not a defense in this case. But literally, like for the Gestapo to be a woman is to be apolitical and therefore not a threat in the same way. It makes makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously a politically active woman is the husband's wife is the husband's problem. So, you know, mm -hmm. call, call him in to sort that out. Has anyone worked on that? I mean, aside from you? That's in my stuff. Uh, Vandana oh, yeah. Joshi has done stuff about relationships between women and men. But again, that is mostly about how women recruit the system as a, a, to resolve private disputes in the different ways that, uh, that women instrumentalize denunciation. Yeah. So there, the, the way that the Gestapo deals with people, the Gestapo institutional view is often missing 
because the debate was so oriented around denunciation since, you know, the yeah. Gestapo in German society in 91. So. No, so um, I hope you, are, you you have a nice, nice hefty section on that. I make, I, I deal with her. Uh, it's part of my taxonomy of different things that affect Gestapo decisions mm -hmm. and go into detail and make sure to draw attention to those elements whenever they arise. So I, I have a whole thing that deals with the different political and social backgrounds that weight the scales, as it were, to tip one way or the other. So, I mean, you, you don't need me to tell you that you have a, an, an article for, for, for gender history there. You know that yourself, don't you? Hmm. Um, fine. So I, I, would, I would definitely do something with that. All right, I, I will. I will take the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 would have been once again my 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 gut instinct from from having spent entirely too many years reading stuff. But um, if, if you have you have the evidence there to really make a strong case, so man, do that. This is cool stuff. Well, if you can suggest any any core historiography, because that's why I've been shying away from it. Because I know the historiography of the Gestapo, but I, apart from, you know, a couple of, I've read a couple books that sort of dealt with women in Nazi Germany, but I don't really know. There isn't, a, there isn't all that much. You, you have, uh, I'm, I'm sure you have read what you need. Just write okay. the damn thing. All right. <laughs> I'll get it I out mean, there. Seriously. And then have reviewer to tell you what you haven't read. Right. That's what we have reviewer two for. I mean, seriously, I can. I, I'm happy. I'm happy to look at it, but um, I'm. I'm. I'm sure you. You know the literature well enough to to write this. You say there's there's nothing as far as I know on on. I mean, let me think. But we have write that already. <laughs> All right, because it's it's a fun it's a fun little tidbit. It would be easy enough to break off, and it has it has some of the most interesting stories with, uh, associated with it. It's it's also more than a fun little tidbit because it's just fairly central if you're looking at gender history. Well, I, I didn't mean it in that sense, but I meant yeah, in, yeah. in the scope of the larger argument about how the Gestapo polices all of society. Yeah, gender of is yeah, among, yeah. <laughs> among the other parts. So, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Do that. Cool. The only thing that I have to add here is is just to say thank you so much for coming on here and speaking with us. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. Yes, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Great fun. And on that note, we draw this installment of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. Moving forward, Chris and I have been looking at doing another little mini-series on the concentration camp specifically. We have Nicholas Voxman's Ka'el, which is a history of the concentration camps that has come out recently that both of us are looking for an excuse to go through in detail and using that as a focal point to bring in the other work that we've done on different aspects of the concentration camp system, that things that other people have done that we have read and taught seemed like a good place to take the discussion next. We're also looking at stepping away for a while and taking some time to actually focus on writing the end phase article. So that will be coming in the not too, too distant future, but there will be some heads up before that happens. 
With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.